0: Andy Crouch is one of those cultural thinkers who sees things more deeply than most, and yet somehow also manages to do so with this uncannily contagious joy. Those people are such a gift to be around, right? In the past, he's often been a few steps ahead, seeing around the corner when it comes to how technology impacts us, or what culture is at its core and how it shapes us, or the nature of power and how effective organizational leadership carries a paradoxical twist Again and again, whether he's a 10-year campus chaplain at Harvard University, or leading the magazine Regeneration Quarterly, or Christianity Today, or now at Praxis, Andy makes unnerving, down-to-earth sense, even as his insights can often surprise you. But really, who knew he had expertise on COVID-19? For the last six years, Sarah Pulliam Bailey has been the Washington Post's religion reporter, and she's now based in New York City, which, given what she's seeing, helps make this conversation about the reality of coronavirus even more lively and enriching. She presses Andy for where he got his ahead of the curve information, so stick around for that answer. But to quickly recap, on Thursday, March 12th, before most Americans had reckoned with the global coronavirus pandemic or understood what was rapidly unfolding around the globe and headed our way, Andy published an incredibly well-researched piece that got the science just right telling nonprofits and church leaders to swiftly cancel religious services and large group activities because COVID-19's impact would be severe and long-lasting. There are ways to cope, he says, and we should pivot to carefully thinking about those, but the cost would be stark and far more jarring than most of us could imagine at the time. And then a week later, he and two colleagues argued that entrepreneurs and small business leaders in particular should see this, quote, not just as something for leaders to get through for a few weeks rather borrowing language from university of minnesota infectious disease specialist michael osterholm andy argued we're facing something much more like an economic and cultural blizzard winter even the beginning of a little ice age a a once-in-a-lifetime change that's likely to affect our lives and organizations for years just what does this mean there's of course a growing trove of COVID commentary out there But Andy's leading beyond the blizzard is worth reading from start to finish. And the fascinating, fast-moving conversation you're about to hear cuts right to it. From new forms of reimagined social interaction in work and religion and campus life, to the critical importance of lament for creativity, to facing down our aloneness and cultivating new forms of intimacy with those you love, to drawing out enduring lessons from the 1918 Spanish flu and 9-11 and the financial crisis of 2008. You can read their bios in the notes, but let's jump in with Andy and Sarah. Enjoy the conversation.
1: So Andy, you have written some pieces, especially for some church leaders on how to think about coronavirus. I think initially there was a lot of, just make it through the next week, make it through two weeks. And you highlighted that this is this is maybe gonna take a while. How are you talking to pastors? How are you talking to nonprofit leaders? What are you telling them?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So at Praxis, we shipped two pieces about a week apart. And the first was like pure urgency uh, because it was actually during that week, which seems inconceivably long ago now when people were thinking, should we cancel events this weekend? <laughs> uh, and and so that piece was a very strongly worded kind of call to action in love to kind of change course from the way that a lot of churches perhaps were thinking or just hadn't thought it through. But then a week later, we shipped a very different kind of piece, and it's The Long View. It actually kind of begins with this metaphor from Michael Osterholm, who's an infectious disease specialist at the University of Minnesota. And maybe because he lives in Minnesota, he uses this metaphor of blizzard and winter, where a blizzard is something that sweeps in, maybe even there's a few days of disruption, and then the sun comes out and the plows have done their work and you go back to normal life. And he says, we're really not looking at an epidemiological blizzard right now, we're looking at an epidemiological winter. So think months, not weeks. What my colleagues and I tried to say in our piece is actually we need to be thinking even beyond just a single season. Because it could be that we're looking at something like the year eighteen sixteen was called the year without a summer. It was also called eighteen hundred and froze to death <laughs> at the time because of a volcanic eruption halfway around the world. Uh, the whole northern hemisphere experienced a, a dramatic climactic variation, and there was essentially no summer weather. Crops failed. There were frosts in June and August in Europe and, and North America, and. So thinking in terms of a multi-year horizon is really different from thinking about how do we get through these next couple of weeks of lockdowns. So that was what we were trying to catalyze for our community of organizations we work with and more broadly.
1: Did you feel like there was pushback or hesitancy?
2: There's been quite a bit of hesitancy for sure. I think a very common reaction has been, this might be right, but I don't know. And I'm not sure what to think about it yet. A lot of people have called it provocative, which I think means (laughs) I wasn't thinking this way, and I don't actually want to think I need to think this way. (laughs) And we admit in the piece, of course, we don't know. And there are definitely scenarios. The Atlantic had a great piece this week playing out roughly four different kind of scenarios. And we absolutely acknowledge how in the world does anyone know? No one knows. But I would say it's a little scary how the messages that are just coming inbound to me as a as a donor, as a supporter of nonprofit organizations, how few of them seem to be taking what in the piece we call a little ice age scenario, a kind of perhaps multi-year scenario, really into account – And so in a sense, I think people are resisting it a little bit by being consumed by the urgency of the moment, which is very understandable, and not quite knowing what they would communicate or what they would plan for if really this is going to change the conditions of our lives in very dramatic ways for several years.
1: It feels to me like some people were treating this like a hurricane that was going to be over in maybe a week, (laughs) but maybe the metaphors of war are coming out. You know, this is we're in it for a while.
2: Yeah, I think that's closer, almost certainly closer to the truth, if not for the mere epidemiology. A lot of folks are very focused on just when will there be more effective treatment or tracing or testing. Or of course, ultimately a vaccine. But when you add in the economic reality, which we are seeing unfold, and how hard it is for economies to simply restart after the kinds of events that we're having, and even though we have had epidemics in the past, there's nothing quite like what the world is going through right now. So to not plan for a years-long change in in how you do whatever you do, whether you're a business, worst case in some ways, a restaurant, or a nonprofit that has fundraising banquets where you raise maybe two-thirds of your budget, that it would not be an uncommon reality, or a an after-school youth program that your whole point is kids are in school and then they need a place after school. What if they aren't in school and they can't come gather at your local gym or whatever? organizations that aren't thinking today about how to make it through that and still accomplish their core mission in a new way are at real extinction risk, to be totally frank.
0: I was struck, Andy, by your kind of hard truth at the outset being laid out. And I, of course, some of us have watched Bill Gates' interview last night. It'll be a week old by the time this airs, but him starting with a hard pill to swallow in describing his his sort of 10-week view of things. But I wonder if you'd comment on that um, maybe a little bit from a religious angle. Are religious communities used to a hard pill to swallow in a sermon or in biblical literature? Is there some normalcy to your having the case that the hard truth is that any relaxing of restrictions is likely to lead to an increase in cases and that flattening the curve will also extend the curve further out, putting the tough news out there?
2: Well I think there's two different kinds of answers, which is interesting. The one answer is there are very few traditions other than religious traditions that have such deep resources for addressing these moments of profound and even prolonged crisis. So, Just thinking about Christian Europe, just as a starting point, Christian Europe, of course, lived through the Black Death, which perhaps took 30% of the population in its initial wave and came back for centuries. It was about a three to four century long era in which the Black Death from time to time would recur. Quarantine, of course, comes from Italy and from 40 days of isolation. And the 40 days were linked, uh, at least in the popular imagination and maybe in history, to actually the 40 days of Lent. Then you go further back, you go back into the era of the Roman Empire, which was regularly decimated by plagues. And the very distinctive thing about the, the nascent Christian movement was their willingness to stay in the cities when pagan elites, who didn't, of course, have a germ theory of disease, but did have some sense that the city wasn't the safest place to be. When the plague would arrive in a city with similar levels of devastation as the Black Death a millennium later, the pagan priests, the pagan elites would flee to the country where they had homes often. And the Christians directly determined to stay and care for their neighbors. But you go further back and you have maybe not a plague, but a cataclysmic event like the exile of Israel, the exile as it came to be known and understood, where first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom are conquered and carted away in basically acts of cultural assimilation. The the goal of empire at that time was to eradicate local culture, make everybody part of Assyria, then make everybody part of Babylon. And frankly, that's a way worse scenario than anything that is happening today. So in the Judeo-Christian stream, do we have deep scriptural tradition resources to address this? Absolutely. And then the other side of the answer to your question is, does the average North American congregation, even in these traditions... Are they able to access this? Were they ever teaching on this? Were we ever preparing people that part of faith is surviving through intensely hard times? And I think we will find out whether we have access to that tradition. And I think it'll be uneven. But I think there are places where we're going to see that what we were offering people, and in a sense, training people in the Christian word for that would be kind of discipling people in was very thin compared to what we're going to need to make it through this.
1: Just to drill down a little bit more, and journalists are always looking at the political angle, like, is there a political spin on this? How do you think this will change people's ideas about globalization, healthcare, safety nets? I just can't imagine we're going to come away with the same tribes that we
2: had before. You wonder, however, let me say the flight to normalcy after intense events are over is a thing of stunning sociological power. And I've experienced this twice in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, as a kind of journalist, uh, certainly someone who writes broadly and for for wide readers. The first was after 9-11, when I think anyone writing on September 12th, 2001 had a piece whose headline could have been, This Changes Everything. I had one. I said, we're never going back to consumerism. Britney Spears had just danced at the MTV Awards wearing a live snake. I said, no one's ever gonna do that again. Like. I could not have been more wrong. The speed with which the United States fled back to what we knew before was truly mind-blowing. And then we had the Great uh, Recession, the great deleveraging of 2008, 2009. and, And one of my readers just sent me a piece I wrote in 2008 in which I'm like, this changes everything. (laughs) We're never like we are going to become a nation of prudence and thrift and respect for elders and (laughs) cats and dogs will cease living together. And I mean, it was so optimistic. And in fact, when you think about how cataclysmic that felt at the time, and I would actually say systemically, that in some ways, that moment in October 2008 was a moment of greater risk for the world than anything we're experiencing now. Because we know how to beat a pandemic as hard as it is. But what was happening there was the tottering of an enti- the literally the entire global system of money. <laughs> and it was tremendously perilous. But then you actually think, what would we say changed in the last 10 plus years? I mean, not anything like what I thought would change. And finally, just to go a little further back in history, of course, everyone's thinking about the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu came on the heels of the Great War. We've come to call World War One. And in the United States, which was relatively distant from the war, we entered the war late, we entered it very victoriously. There was great cost, but it wasn't on our our shores as neither was World War II for the most part. It's amazing how the Roaring Twenties do not show the slightest imprint of having been through the most devastating war in Western history first, and then the most devastating global plague in human memory second. Now, one counterexample is what the great war did to europe because everything really did change in europe after the great war and so there are these moments that are so defining i mean the big thing it did in europe i mean first of all it was the end of the political arrangement the austro-hungarian empire was no more after the Great War. But it was also the end of Christendom. It was the end of Christian Europe. It's not much of an exaggeration to say that in 1914, Europe believed in God as a kind of society. And by 1920, Europe as a society did not believe in God. So there have been profound changes. But it's interesting how often there are counterexamples where somehow we pull ourselves together and decide we really want what we had back then and let's get going.
1: Also to that, like I feel like there's a lot of blame going around as people are people are getting really angry as more and more cases are coming out. People are feeling it, seeing it on their, their own. And I just see it. I see it already. People are angry at Trump, at the media, at people who voted for Trump, different legislators, like different policymakers. Like there's a lot of anger. And in the sense... I was pretty young when 9-11 happened. I was in middle school, I think. And I remember a sense of like resilience and a a sense of like, we can do this. American can get through this. And and there was anger. I don't want to dismiss. And there was racism and lots of horrible reaction to 9-11, but there was a sense of pride. America first. And I don't, See that yet? Am I going to see that? Like I don't see I don't see someone throw, well I mean this is the nature of not having like baseball. We don't have anybody throwing the first pitch. We don't have President Bush to throw the first
2: pitch. That's right. This is a uniquely challenging time isn't it, for our institutions because while certain institutions were targeted, of course, I mean explicitly by the the attackers on 9/11, Wall Street and the Pentagon. Nonetheless, uh, partly because you you can't actually take out all those institutions even if you take out buildings there was this very quick way in which American institutions were able to respond in a way that reflected the American people's desire to be galvanized. And one of the really fascinating things about this particular moment is that our institutions, not least our churches, our nonprofits, our service organizations, all the ways that people pull together. I mean, you think about, you know, my son was in Houston. He's a, He was a college student during uh, Hurricane Harvey. And he sent us, an email. he said, there's nowhere I'd rather be than in Texas in the middle of a natural disaster because Texans, like they pull together. But of course, the very instruction at this moment, and perhaps for way longer than we've been readily imagining is don't pull together, stay apart. <laughs> and All these things that give us a sense of solidarity and connection, up to and including baseball, are not there. And I do think there is a sense of our institutions failed us, and people will blame different ones, depending on their leaning or what their information sources are. And we have to admit this came at a time when trust in institutions was cratering anyway. So, yeah, what's on the other side of that? As Yogi Berra said, it is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who knows
1: i've been looking for stories of resilience of not her- heroicism like in a romantic sense but of people stepping in i was struck by i did a story last week on a megachurch one of the largest churches in america in alabama they canceled their services on sunday and by tuesday they were doing tests in the parking lots they were shuttling and i think 2000 2000- it was a thousand or 2000 in like first two or three days it was a lot of people. I mean they did this because they they had a health clinic in place, they had relationships with a, a local lab. Like they had they had kind of a structure in place to do something like that. But I love that kind of story where it's like people are very innovative and creative. These religious nonprofits or houses of worship step up in times of need.
2: Right, that's right.
1: So I I'm struggling to find more and more. I want to I want to do more of those stories. But right now I think I feel a pressure to like that we're still shaming people who haven't gotten the message cuz we're seeing more and more people still like not doing the social distancing but I think most people have have gotten there but now I'm like okay we now that we have the message like we have all kind of caught up to speed and we're appropriately anxious or whatever or maybe too anxious I don't know but like now what now we need something like hopeful and interesting and compelling to to keep us like engaged and not shut down.
0: Maybe, Andy, if I could tack on at a time when institutions are weak, fractured, not as trusted as before. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about there's policy stuff, but there's also the the role of individuals and you have this thing on authority and vulnerability and a matrix and how that actually can be enhanced for a leader who gets ahead of this thing a little bit, leader of a community association or hospital board or family or congregation, et cetera? Like, what does that look like with those themes?
2: Yeah, great question. So one of the things we said in in the piece that we wrote called Leading Beyond the Blizzard, which was our kind of big call to organizations to think differently about what they're doing, maybe for many years, is... The most important resource, even when everything else is disappearing resource-wise, like we can't gather people in many places, you literally can't gather anyone except for the people you already live with. That won't be true forever, but it's true for now. Money is evaporating. The people who support us are seeing either their equities tank or their jobs disappear or whatever. There is one resource that is actually still available, and it's trust, Trust really matters. There's a lot you can do when you have trust, and there's a lot you cannot do if you don't have trust. Now, the challenge of this time is it's very very hard to build trust from scratch right now because the way we build trust is by being with other people, almost always in person, in my view. But what you can do is actually build on the trust that you already have. And the way you do it is with this really interesting combination of authority and vulnerability. So my view, and I, I wrote about this years ago, and it's one of the things that's just keeps showing up in every, everything I do in my own life, you know, all the way down to being a husband and a parent, as well as being a, a writer and a leader. It's this idea that all the best moments of human life actually come when we have vulnerability combined with authority. And this is not the way we often think about it. We often think of those two things as opposites, like either I have authority or else I'm very vulnerable. And in the social services world, people often talk about vulnerabilities as kind of a negative thing. And we're, we're here to help people escape their vulnerabilities. But there's another kind of vulnerability, which is just honest openness to risk in the world. The reality that to be human is to be vulnerable. In many ways, we human beings are more vulnerable than any other creature, which is strange because we also have more authority than any other creature. But we're more aware of risk. We're aware, uh, all of us are very conscious of this right now. We're aware of our own mortality in a way that no other creature is. That's a profound kind of human vulnerability. We're aware of our dependence on others. We are far more interdependent as a species than any other species. And that's a vulnerability, especially when you see people you know and love who either are or fear becoming sick. Rather than thinking of vulnerability as a debit in the ledger of kind of human capital, it's actually an asset when it's combined with the capacity for meaningful action, which is how I I describe authority. Authority is when you can actually take action in some way that matters. And it doesn't have to be large or large scale. Now, if you don't have those two together, it's really tough. The two main ways you cannot have them together is have vulnerability without authority. And all of us have felt that in the last couple of weeks. We've been in at moments just opening up the news where we feel totally exposed to risk and there's nothing we can do about it. And in a way, our whole Culture, I think it feels that way. And then the flip side is authority without vulnerability, which I would describe as a quest for control. So if I can have authority without risk, I've got control. I actually think part of what's going on with a lot of the blaming and anger, some of it is is justified and justifiable because when people fail in what they were meant to do and supposed to do, it's fair to be upset at least. But some of the excess of rage and blame and so forth is actually trying to get control. Find someone who's at fault, scapegoat them, get in charge by throwing out the people who did it wrong. And control is actually a very counterproductive posture in human affairs. It's actually very damaging. So the trick right now is to build trust by increasing as much as we can, increasing one another's authority, giving each other ways to take meaningful action, and also vulnerability. Let me just give you one example, literally from this afternoon, walking around my own neighborhood. It's happening in neighborhoods all over the country right now. In the windows of homes in our little town, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, do you know what people are putting in the windows?
1: No, what?
2: Stuffed animals. So this is crazy. There are all these people putting into the windows of their homes a stuffed animal like a teddy bear or whatever because so many people are out on little walks with their kids and it's this way to like give the kids something to do like sort of it's a treasure hunt, right? Look for the stuffed animals in all the different windows. And this is just such a beautiful small scale thing, right? We can't go out and greet one another from closer than six feet. We're mostly staying indoors. We're obeying our governor, right? What are we putting in the window? Like this acknowledgement of of the preciousness of childhood, of the kind of delights, but also the vulnerabilities of childhood. Like at 9-11, we put up American flags, right? Like we're strong. We're going to make it through this. We are the U.S. Now we're putting teddy bears in the window. And to me, it's like It's authority, like it's a meaningful action. I can help entertain the children in my neighborhood, even if I don't know them and can't talk to them. And it also is so vulnerable. Like, yeah, I think we all kind of need a teddy bear right now. But those are the kinds of things that actually build community and that build trust and that give me hope that we come out of this with a a kind of tenderness towards one another and ourselves that we didn't have for a while.
1: To that point, I just filed a piece on Easter and how the challenges pastors are facing with that. As they prepare for that, and one pastor said he's telling everyone to put Christmas lights in their windows as for Easter, we might see that. To your point, though, about vulnerability and and power, do you see individuals at the national level right now displaying that?
2: Yes, I, I do, actually. I think the best leaders are displaying it. You mentioned, Sarah, journalists kind of think politically. I want to say I think culturally, but I don't think politically. So my greatest interest is not usually in the political leaders, even though they play an incredibly important role. And I'm very glad there are journalists who cover them. But so I'm not the best informed person. But I will say when I watch Andrew Cuomo's press conferences, which I've watched a couple of, I see an amazing combination of someone who is taking very bold action that you can tell he feels the cost of what he's doing. There's no lack of authority, but to me, he is displaying kind of humility before the facts. He is being transparent with the facts as he understands them. He's not covering them up. He's not sugarcoating it, as near as I can tell. And to me, this is a a very exemplary leadership. I have heard very similar things about the governor of Ohio, so I don't see this as a partisan matter because the governor of Ohio is a a Republican. We've got
0: some friends who don't have kids yet, and of course, they're the ones who are going to have Christmas babies, right?
2: (laughs) Feast of the Annunciation, (laughs) March 25th. Right, right, right. They talk about naming
0: their their new son, potentially Fauci. (laughs) Uh Oh, uh -oh. wow. Because of, you know, that
2: Of course, that's the other huge category, right, is anyone in, in the healthcare world both has the capacity to meaningfully act to some extent, but they are also taking on unbelievable risk. They are the heroes of this much more than the elected officials are. No disrespect to people doing their job as elected officials. But who are we throwing parades for at the end of this? It's everyone working in the healthcare system.
0: Andy, you talk in your piece about grieving. And I was sort of surprised by that and then heard you describe a little bit of that personally. Journalists don't have time to grieve. There's too much work to do, right? But maybe what's the role of grieving before creativity?
2: Yeah, I got this idea months ago before the current crisis from one of our venture partners at Praxis. So we work with entrepreneurs from a faith-based perspective. And Donna Harris uh, is one of our venture partners who runs this thing called the 1776 Fund. She worked in the Obama administration on entrepreneurship. She's a venture capitalist now. And she gave this incredible presentation about the biblical tradition, really, in a sense, the Jewish tradition of lament. Maybe a third to a half of the 150 psalms in the Hebrew Bible are psalms of lament. And this is essentially crying out to God with complaint. (laughs) And you would wonder, what does this have to do with entrepreneurship? But she had a really powerful account of how if we skip over lament, our attempts at creative action become very technical. They become kind of solution-oriented in a very thin way, and they don't acknowledge the deepest reality that often drives us to create, which is the brokenness of the world around us, the injustice of the world around us, and the, the sheer just pain of the world, even when you can't find anyone at fault except maybe God. And the interesting thing about the lament tradition is that it's this way of bringing before God, actually as an act of faith, not as an act of unbelief, but as an act of belief, your grief and and even your rage against God himself. Donna made a really compelling case that a lot of the best creativity starts there. And I think there's a profound psychological truth to it. The truth is I have much to lament. I had much to lament in November when I first heard this from Donna. I have a lot to lament today. I will have more to lament tomorrow. And if I don't somehow present that, speaking as a person of faith, to God, who is my ultimate source of meaning, if I don't bring that into the picture... I think what I create is going to be very reactive and actually quite dangerous to other people, frankly. Yes, we are all busy. And my very first thought when all this unfolded was, oh, we're gonna have so much time, all my travels canceled and I no longer feel that way. (laughs) So we're all getting, we'll be plenty busy for quite a while, especially those of us who are in journalism or adjacent fields. I will just say, it doesn't take a lot of time. I spent 15 minutes uh, a week ago, Monday, almost two weeks ago as we're speaking, weeping on the couch in my living room at what I was losing from this. And I'm not, I'm no different from anyone else and I'm not in a worse situation than anyone else, but there are things I'm losing personally, as we all are. And it was 20 minutes, it was intense. I haven't, I've wept that way maybe three times in my adult life. And then it was done and I was able to get up and do the work I was called to do that day. And I would actually so encourage anyone to do that, especially if you are able, if you are a person of faith, to bring it into relationship with God as you understand God. It makes all the difference.
0: You cite denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance along the way. We can jump around, I suppose, on these things, but that's a a good hard word.
1: Are there stories around lament that you're seeing yet? I mean, I think we just started to see this week a few stories about funerals, being held without family members, I was so devastated by this anecdote in a New York Times article where they could only have 10 people in the service, so the priest and then nine grandchildren were there, and then the children of the person being mourned, they were all out on their iPads and devices, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, of trying to lament remotely. (laughs) I mean, are there other, apart from these sort of like, we can't have funerals together, are there bigger, big idea stories around that?
2: All I would say is I think I think maybe it's the job of many folks listening to this to go looking for those stories and document the new ways that we find to do this. I will say when it comes to lament, I mean, obviously, it's a great gift in a way to a community to be able to gather and mourn the life of an individual when that person has had a wide impact. We know of course that those big funerals are are a mixed blessing for the people closest to the person. It's important for the whole community to come together, but it's also can be really challenging when you're the surviving family to deal with all those people. And so I will say I what I needed, and I was not grieving the death of anyone, to be clear, but I was grieving loss. I needed my spouse, my wife Catherine, to come and lay a hand on my back and be with me for a few moments. I don't know that we need I don't think we need lots of people, but I think we absolutely need a person. And I also think that for what it's worth, I think the current utter lockdown, though I understand the public health reasons for it, it is unsustainable for exactly this reason that we've got to be able to do things, but we are going to be doing them in very small groups. And I think the biggest sociological story, there's a bit of a tangent from what you said, Sarah, but answer your, your first question. So I'll give you another take. I think the big sociological story coming out of this for the next couple of years is how do we do things in much more intimate groups than we've come accustomed to as Americans? We're used to big things. Churches have become huge. I was talking with a friend in, in Dallas, you know, the Dallas Cowboys previous stadium, stadium, which I don't remember the numbers, but only seated 80,000. Not enough, like we need a bigger one. And we're so used to these huge things. And we're going to have to figure out how do we really do all the essential stuff of life from religious service and prayer to funerals uh, to weddings in very plausibly in groups under 50 and in places that are experiencing intense outbreaks which will roll across the country and become in waves uh, in groups of under 10 and this is not like what we're strongest at right now the flip side is There is a power in that small community to relieve the sense of loneliness that is one of the defining features of American life. And if we can find ways to enfold one another in these small groups, I actually think we could potentially alleviate one of the worst things about being an American, which is how lonely the baseline of our our lives are.
0: We have friends who have homeschooled kids. We have friends who have kids that are outsourced to the public school system. We have friends with kids in, in the private schools as well and various. And one of our friends talked about the Great Reset. This is also, in a way, a great reveal because when you're suddenly fathers are back with their children daily, 24 hours a day, it shows, tells a lot about where we are for good and for ill. And it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity with that sort of turning back of parents toward children and vice versa. I wonder if there's some opportunity at least for renewal at the local level that's part of part of this hard thing.
2: I think unfortunately it's going to be kind of bimodal which is to say for some people as time goes on in these intense conditions of proximity and really intimacy in the broadest sense like just not being able to avoid each other I think for some folks it's going to get better and better over time and they'll remember it as just the most amazing time in their their marriage or perhaps their friendships or whatever. And then I think for many folks, it's going to get worse and worse. There is some anecdotal evidence. I haven't chased down all the research, but it seems like divorces in Hubei province have gone way up in the wake of the lockdowns there. It's really hard to live with other people. One way I put this to uh, some folks recently is uh, we're all kind of monks now. So monks are people who live in intense community, but also with great degrees of solitude and silence together. And the two number one problems monks have, for which they have whole monastic rules to deal with, are solitude on the one hand, and the other one is other monks. <laughs> like it is really hard to live with other monks when you cannot get get away from them. And all of us are going to. I think we're really Going to need rules of life, like ways of living that are pretty disciplined. I don't think Unlimited Netflix is actually going to do it. Like I think you'll spiral into it, you'll see a lot of spiraling into addiction or a kind of spiral into health, where the the day-by-day conflicts that we experience the need to be much quicker to forgive, much quicker to say we're sorry, much more generous to one another, will actually lead us at the end to be really transformed people. And it, it's kind of in in our hands which story plays out.
1: Yeah, just along with that, I've seen some concerns about just the rate of domestic violence with women and children just skyrocketing. I have a friend who does basketball ministry for young men, and he's like, can't do that right now. And the reason they're out playing basketball is because they're escaping their homes.
2: Because home is not great. It's a huge issue. And this is why, honestly... If I have one policy opinion in all of this, it's we've got to move as fast as possible to being able to gather in small, well, hygienically managed groups. I don't know how soon you can be playing basketball again, realistically, in many American cities, but staying at home, I feel very blessed with an extremely patient spouse and our daughter's home from college and we have a really strong set of relationships and it's hard for us, but we're in a relatively healthy place thanks to some suffering we went through earlier. You kind of suffer now or suffer later. You don't really get to choose when, but fortunately we suffered earlier. But so many homes don't have that for all kinds of reasons. Not always the fault of the people left in the home. And We've got to get back to a place where people can gather in groups larger than the nuclear family, which really does start to feel pretty nuclear, like atomic explosion level nuclear, when it's cut off from those extended sources of community of what anthropologists call fictive kinship, the person who really is like your uncle, even though he's not actually your uncle, but who comes into the home and is a friend and provides some stability and some stress relief, like all those informal relationships, I think I'm really afraid that out of a unchecked fear of contagion, which obviously has to be a priority, that we will clamp down so hard on the the numbers of people allowed to gather. We'll clamp down beyond public health reason just to feel like we're doing something. I I hope that won't happen because I think it'll be really bad for mental and emotional health.
0: And in a way that gets to Sarah's latest piece about the economy versus lives and how you balance the two and sort of hold the two priorities side by side. That's why we hope you're listening to this on your bicycle or on a run. Or on the way to the community center right now, and not frustrated late at night washing dishes. Sarah, would you say a word about? First of all, you're in New York, where it's all happening at high level, and and what you learned from that piece.
1: Yeah, I I saw this sort of emerging debate happen, and should we trade grandma for the economy? And it was just it was just shocking. I was like, what? Like, we're really doing this? We're talking about we're talking in these stark, stupid dichotomies. <laughs> That was stupid. So I was like, I'm just going to spend the day, again, I'm looking for stories that personally help me feel resilient. And so I was like, I'm going to call some ethicists today. (laughs) So I spent the day, and policy people who think about policy, and just talked to a bunch of people who were like, this is not how we think about the world. Like we are not, it's not either or. We're interconnected, and it's not healthcare or the economy. Like, they feed each other. If you don't have an economy, you're not gonna have the masks to protect the healthcare workers. So I was grateful because I feel like it came right at a moment where we were like the internet was devolving into really bad ways and people were searching for like, how do I think about this? Here are some smart ethicists who can help guide you.
2: That's so good. It's a false trade. I do worry about decisions made out of fear that do not acknowledge there's more than one way to die. COVID-19 is not the only way to die. And isolation, we know, is a way to die. Isolation, by the way, also increases uh, or decreases immune function. I believe that's pretty well established. So we need to find ways for people to be out and connected safely with each other and, and with the wider world, not just so that the the money economy gets going. But economy originally is a word that means kind of the stewardship of, of our shared life. It means the management of the household. It thinks of the world as this kind of household with all these different needs that need to be cared for. And in that sense, we really do need to be thinking about the economy. Right? Who cares about the Dow Jones, per se, the interaction and interplay of human beings conferring value on one another. In that sense, that is an independent good that is not incompatible with stopping the pandemic.
1: One thing that I'm struck by, Andy, is just like the sources that people are looking to for where they trust, whether it's Washington Post, New York Times, whatever traditional formats, or they're looking to radio hosts or whatever. I'm wondering, what are you checking? What are you reading on a daily, weekly basis?
0: Yeah, I wondered that same thing. Like, how does a Christian cultural commentator turned entrepreneurial guru get all this information about public health and epidemiology?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, <laughs> it's right to question my credentials. It starts with a borderline addiction, which I have been trying to manage over the last year, which is to Reddit. I kind of stumbled on Reddit about a, years, a year ago and onto a few different communities. I mean, Reddit is this vast thing, and most of it I don't, I don't attend to and try to stay away from a lot of it. I think I really started thinking about this stuff primarily through a couple of subreddits.
1: What subreddits are you in? <laughs>
2: There was one called China flu that I'm pretty sure that was the title. I realize that's become really controversial, but this was like eight weeks ago when it was the flu in China. So and that was like wild, untrammeled speculation about the worst case scenario, much of which, by the way, has actually happened, (laughs) but also like societal collapse. Then there's one called coronavirus, which is moderated and is a little more limited. So I followed that one for a while. But then I've actually switched to one called COVID-19 and COVID-19 is very, very strictly moderated to only originate with scientific evidence-based work. Not always peer-reviewed because peer-review is an intricate process, but preprints and that kind of thing. And I actually stopped reading the coronavirus one because it also is full of, I will mean, just make your hair stand on end. I was reading COVID-19 quite intensively, almost from when it started up. And I was like, oh this is actually going to happen to us. Like this is not staying in China. This is not staying in even in certainly not in Europe. So Reddit has been huge. Like, I mean, I'm reading a lot of traditional media as well. Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal have been great on this stuff. Like, I trust it. I don't know if everybody does. I do. But what Reddit is so brilliant about, actually, and I don't know, well, I guess I do know the mechanism. It's the fact that the community rates comments in such a way that the best contributions really do rise to the top. And, and at least if you sort the results in the right way, you really do see this high quality conversation that includes both. Genuine experts and just lay people who have insight—it's way better than Facebook, where where there's there's really Facebook is not granular enough in how it sorts information, in in my view. But Reddit hasn't been great, and then so then I just created a Twitter list of people who seem to be most important to follow, and I keep adding and subtracting when people get too sensational or politicized. I get rid of them. (laughs) People like Nicholas Christakis and, and this missionary in Hong Kong named Lyman Stone, who's a demographer, who's not an epidemiologist, but very, very sharp on this stuff. And I just was following them for quite a while and realized, oh my goodness, I think I need to probably write about this for my Christian community and leaders in my Christian community.
0: Maybe one closing question from me, Andy, because your book TechWise Family made as large a splash as it did and reformed a bunch of people's habits. Does this sort of Ice Age we're entering into, right? Is that gonna kind of cause you to rethink a little bit of that? Are we gonna to have to live a little bit more digital screens?
2: It's so funny. So,
0: you know, the whole idea
2: behind Techwise Family is let's put technology in its proper place in the home. It's not an anti-tech book, but it is a book about making really wise choices. And, and it, it is partly about limiting screens in particular. And yes, every family in the country is now basically disregarding every single thing in that book. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic. Except that as a writer, you look back to your like BC writing right before coronavirus and you're like, will anyone ever read this again? Like, will this make any sense to anyone in the future? And I certainly feel that way about TechWise Family, which is my best-selling book by far. Gosh, is this totally obsolete? And I don't think it is. I think what we're actually going to learn in this time, first of all, we are learning what a gift means of communication are. We're actually learning how what a gift high bandwidth means are because we're talking. And even though this can maybe go out in audio form, being able to see your faces matters, right? It matters to the level of trust we have. It helps the conversation in certain key ways. So we're finding out what a gift this technology is, but we're also going to find out what it can't do and the limits. And I really think we're going to try to entertain ourselves to death and realize that doesn't work. Here's my wildest prediction. I think it could be that there's going to be a whole generation for whom video games will have absolutely no appeal once they grow up, because it'll be that thing that we did when we were 14 years old during that awful pandemic, and I never want to play a video game again in my life.
1: Andy, this is your prediction that in 10 years, you're going to look back and be like, haha, wasn't I?
2: (laughs) When everyone has their AR goggles on all the time and is like, oh, this is so great. Well, you got got all the authority
0: and lots of vulnerability right there, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. My daughter's a college student. Like, I think she's going to suffer through half a semester of Zoom classes and never want to be on Zoom again. Like Zoom stock is going to peak in October of 2020 and then like decline because people are gonna be like, no, no, no. So in the sense that the TechWise family was about realizing we need fully human ways of relating that are heart, soul, mind, and strength is the kind of way I think about it. We're, we're not just brains. We're not just bodies. We're this mysterious combination. And we are at our best when we're in heart, soul, mind, strength relationships with other people. And technology can assist in that, but it cannot replace that. And I think there's going to be a hunger for that that's very real. Now, how that plays out in the long term, I don't know. But I think there's going to be real hunger for a a more tech-wise way after the immediate urgencies are passed.
1: Yeah, I saw some anxiety over people going to online church and like, oh, no, are people not going to come back? And I was like, I think people had the option before. Like, (laughs) there's been a lot of (laughs) online church already.
2: Absolutely. We've
1: had these options. We're forced to do this. This is not something we're opting into. So I think that's different.
2: Yeah, that's right. If you're Catholic, which I'm not, but the day you get to go back and receive the host from the priest and adore the Eucharist, I mean, it's going to be of such profound meaning to people. And there are analogs in other religious traditions as well. So... We are going to be very glad the day we get our embodied lives in the world back.
0: That might be a wonderful word to end on, Andy. If you're just listening to this for the fourth straight podcast, get out there on your bicycle or go for a run or brisk walk, good swim in an isolated lake. Thanks, you guys, very much.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you both so much.
0: Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with leading thinkers, including the scholars and clerics who think most carefully about religion's enduring role in society. Please subscribe, tell a friend, and find more resources at faithangle.org. Thanks for listening.